Welcome to Conversations with Z and Vindesh, a weekly discussion that explores common life challenges and offers practical solutions. Learn more at dharmamedia.com. That's D-H-A-R-M-A media.com. Welcome everyone to Conversations. And Z, we've been sitting here talking for a bit, so I feel like we're picking up in the middle of the discussion. We've been talking about a lot of things. We've been talking about ego. We've been talking about some of the senseless aspects of our reality, of the world we live in. We talked about Lebanon and how carelessness led to an explosion which has taken the lives of thousands. Something similar happened in India, in Bhopal, in the 80s. And in all of these cases, you could argue that people are creating their own reality. And based on your reality, that affects how you deal with other people, the decisions you make, and from more of a cosmic standpoint, the results of those decisions. So what is the karma? What is the impact of what you're doing? And I think your attitude towards the world, towards life, whether you're open-hearted or you're tight-fisted, really impacts the way that you relate to others, and in a sense, your legacy. Are you someone who can take this world and evolve it forward, or are you someone who contributes to chaos and destruction? And maybe the right place to start is with the ego and the way that we think about the world, whether it's a playground for us, and the situations we find ourselves in are there for our amusement. We're here to accumulate as much as we can in terms of resources, it's almost a zero-sum game view, that there's a finite set of resources, the world revolves around us, we need to grab as much as we can, other people be damned. We can use them for amusement, for power, for money, for sex, whatever it is. And we go through life, in that case, unconscious of the effects of our actions, blind to some of the devastation that we cause, really unconcerned with anything beyond ourselves. And if you measure success in terms of immediate gain, not just immediate gain, but immediate material gain, so that's an important distinction. There's a whole other set of gain that we could talk about that's not as easy to quantify or observe. But if we take a materialist view, and life is about getting as much for yourself as you can, then you don't really care about who you hurt. You tend to use other people you break promises, your word isn't very good, you might behave carelessly. We talked about the warehouse in Lebanon. You might not do your job to inspect the warehouse because it's not worth your time. You don't care what the impact is of your actions. And I think it's easy to see where that leads us from a macro standpoint. If people are only concerned about themselves, you're not paying attention to your community, your extended family, that's going to lead in some cases to devastation because no one's paying attention, no one cares whether you're putting other people at risk. But it's also going to affect you as an individual. The mindset that you bring really frames your reality. It frames how you move through this life, when you get out of it. And you mentioned a quote by Khalil Gibran about Lebanon. And he said, you have your Lebanon and it's one of despair, I have mine, and it's one of great beauty. Maybe you can help tie that in for us. And really, 
how does the way that we approach life impact the way that, I guess, impact what we get out of it? Man, that's, um, as always, it's heavy. You know, I was going to read Khalil Gibran, but um, I really feel the spirit of him at this moment. Um, one of the people and I, that I read about that I admired. I just started thinking as you were talking, as the yogis say, all of this life is an illusion. And one of the big questions that's asked in the classic studies of philosophy is, what is the meaning and the purpose of this life and, and when does it end? And right in that moment, I thought about why we're sitting here. I was born into tremendous hardship and challenges. At a very early age, I was able to witness the worst of humanity. Those who readily inflicted suffering and could sleep like a baby at night after harming many people. I learned to be a, a soldier, a child soldier, to fight for some noble cause and possibly die in a great battle before I reach maturity. I learned to have high situation awareness to, of course, distrust government, strangers, different groups of people. And it all seemed right. And as I grew through this life, I evolved and changed and grew into different forms. In this life, in this short, brief moment that we are conscious, this little moment that we fight for, like the greatest treasure in the world, we want to live forever, knowing that we're not. What are we doing here? I can't answer that, but I can think about those who came before me that I admired. I'm sitting here with you, as you know, because a promise I made to a dying teacher. Why did I care? Because he cared about me. He loved me and nurtured me and he showed me a vision of a world that would be much more joyful than the world that I had known, even though at the time I didn't see that world. And as I matured, I got to peek in to a world that he had given to me only in imagination. He had opened my mind. I have other mentors and teachers who are in their older years and they'll soon dissolve from this life. And what was the purpose of their life? The only purpose I know that I can bear witness to is that they loved me when I didn't love myself. They saw potential in me when I saw no potential. They gave me a peek into a future that they had animated and shared that vision 
with me that when I didn't believe in it, and I've got to live an extraordinary life. And I look around the world as you spoke about the events in Lebanon, the events in Flint, Michigan, that there are people who walk this earth who can be a party to and inflict untold suffering on others with no mindfulness of past or future, no connection to humanity as a whole. We often yell at people and the political class and say, what's your legacy going to be? What will history say about you? You know, they, a sad reality, it doesn't, they don't care what history will say about them. They don't care about the things you think. And in a way, they're right. I asked, did my noble teacher care about his legacy or his future? I don't think that he did. I think he cared about me. And he had hopes for me. And that's it. Whatever happened in the future or was going to happen, that wasn't what he was concerned about because it was in the moment of interaction that he gave his heart, his soul, his love, his devotion, his support, his discipline. He shared that with me. But in order for me to fully process and digest it, I had to allow a lot of my ego to decay. The part of my ego that knew absolutely the way things were. That even if it were different than what I thought, I would refuse to accept that. That's what the ego will do. So in these philosophies and arts and sciences I've studied, they're, they're always pounding the ego into dust. But in that pounding into dust, into that pulverizing of the ego, you also are able to see the world with such clarity. This is it for us. Be kind. Do your best. Because it feels good. It doesn't cost money. Doesn't cost sleep. I mentioned before, Lao Tzu said, do your best and walk away. But what is your best? Maybe it comes down to just being true to yourself. But the ego doesn't allow truth. It allows grandizement. It allows narcissism. It rejects the moment of truth. Because they say the moment of truth because truth is ever evolving based on the circumstances. But the ego wants to have a fixed idea. Its own platform of grandiose praise, right? When you subdue the ego, the whole world opens up to you. In Khalil's Gibran's writing at the time, he was exiled from Lebanon for just writing about the corruption of the church, the corruption of the government. Same things happening right now all over the world. 
right here in the U.S., across the southern borders, different, to different extremes and degrees. What do we learn from it? Again, as the Buddha said, the emptiness of human life. It's empty because you're not living. You're plotting, planning, scheming, how to get more, how to take more, who wins, who loses. Whenever you're doing that, you're not living anymore. You're alive, but you're not living. The prophet of Lebanon, when he said, you have your Lebanon and I have mine, I think about this country that I grew up in. And you have the people that wave the flags and honor political parties. You know, they have their America and I have mine. I served in the military, not because there was a threat to the ways and culture of America from an outside brown man or yellow man or somebody that spoke a different language. I signed up because I just wanted to go to college and pay my fees. And it was hard. And it gave me an opportunity to go to school. When I went into the, to the military, there was extreme tribalism, as I like to say, most people refer to simply as racism. But I've always liked myself, so I was never that affected by racism because I didn't care if racist people liked me or not. And so I had friends and companions from all over. So you had their, they had their America and I had mine. When I traveled overseas and they said, well, you have to be very, uh, very diligent because the enemy is all about. I didn't find enemies, I found friends. So you have your American, I have mine. Wherever I traveled this world, I found people that have like mind, like thinking, like attitude. I found friends everywhere. So you have your America and I have mine. Your America is corrupt, hate-filled, polarized, tribalistic, narcissistic, infected with ignorance. But I have mine. I got good friends from all over the world. We share like-minded views. We would like to plant the seeds for a nice future for the children. They speak every known language on earth. They come from many different cultures and backgrounds. And they all feel at home resting their head on a pillow in my house. So my America isn't a hostile place, a fearful place, a hate-filled place. There's no religious purity test in my America. There's no um, relative morality there's no confirmation bias. I don't compare people I like different from people I, I compare them different that I don't like. I accept people who believe in God and don't believe in God. I find something in each of those. That's what my America does. 
Same thing everywhere I went in the world. People say, oh, aren't you scared to travel these places? I've had a wonderful time. Because really, you have your earth and I have mine, shit. But the biggest travel opportunity has been afforded, I've been afforded, is because I've been able to present my ego naked and bare. And know that whatever I think or whatever I feel things should be is an artificial construct of this ego. And if I can subdue that ego, if I can put a leash on it, the world opens up to me. Because I know hardship. I know what it's like to have so much grief, sorrow, and pain that you hope you don't see another sunrise. I know what it's like to feel the emptiness of death and how it empties your heart as much as it empties the heart of the dead. I know evil. I know the flat facial affect of cruelty and evil that could suddenly switch on from doing some atrocity to a human being to turning around and bouncing a baby on its knee. The pure manifestation of a devil-like beast. I've seen that. In the military, I saw people commit all manners of atrocities against other human beings and then write a love letter home. It's always hard for me to reconcile and wonder, how, how do you do that? How do you abuse, murder, molest one minute and then write a love letter home at the next? The soullessness of people. I've seen it. But it didn't take my soul away. I always could discern. My intelligence allowed me to see that that behavior was not sustainable. It is not a nurturing behavior in terms of nurturing my essence and my soul. See, I can only speak for me. So as Khalil Gibran said, you have your Lebanon and I have mine. I, you, know, you have your home and I have mine. And ask yourself, what does it look like? Look into the self and see, what does that look like? My ego wants contentment. As the Vedas say, as I've studied the Vedic philosophy, it says the best type of happiness is contentment. I have found, as elusive it can be, I have found contentment. I'm content with you. And to know the power of contentment, hell, I'm content with Caitlin. I'm very proud of her. I've seen the work she puts in. I've seen her grow as a human being in the time we've known each other and exemplify the work that a dying teacher asked me to continue to extend his life. There are few people I have known as loyal as her, as duty-bound as her, who's taken on our project with such nobility, even though that's not necessarily the background she came from. She's found her way through this. 
So though my professor is long gone, you, her, he lives forever in our work together. You're going off into a whole new project then, a whole new project, something I saw in you years ago. You look younger now than you did 10 years ago. You're more happy than you are sad. That's my world. I don't know what other people's world is. That gives my life something. If I were to take my last breath tonight as I expelled this life, all these thoughts and a hundred more would go through my mind, I'm sure. The, as the illusion of my life disappeared, I could reflect right now on the goodness in this life that has been spread far and wide. Not by me, but by people who love me and use me as a proxy. But in order to be used as that proxy, you must subjugate the ego. I will never take claim to whatever good I've done. Because I'm, I'm, I'm a bad man. I'm not a great human being. I didn't care much for people. I witnessed too much as a child. I, I suffered too much. I saw too much pain. I saw the abuses, the lies, the hypocrisies of these societies, the genocide, the homicide, the hatred rewarded. You can't go through something like that and be a good person. But in the subjugating of the ego, first just through the whim of fate and happenstance, and then through study, I could see life worth living. Just beauty from the different people that I would meet. I can honestly say, man, I know lovely people, lovely people, that I'm glad to have shared my life with. That gives my life meaning and richness. The hauntings are always there. The other day someone sent me a video of, of a one another police uh, horror, another human rights abuse, another folly of diseased, maggoty, uh, rabbit dog behavior. And I could feel that demon well up and my desire to just inflict untold suffering on these rabid dogs. And it made my stomach sick. And they casually asked, what's your, what's your response to this? What are your thoughts on this? Well, what is my thought on a homicidal pedophile? What is my thoughts on any? It's sickening, disturbing. But I realized in that moment through my work, through my efforts, through my practice, that you have your world and I have mine. I'm going to resist being absorbed in that. And I'm going to go and nurture the kids. I'm going to talk to my good friends. I'm going to stay strong in the center of this storm. I know if the time comes, my life will be brought to that point. I will fight for what I believe. And in fighting that fight, there is a high probability of me being overwhelmed 
by evil. But in the egocentrism of nobility that I have in me, I'll die on my feet. I'll die fighting. That brings me peace. But until that moment, I'm going to just love the people in my life as much as I can. I'm going to share as much as I can. I'm going to carry the honor of those who love me and gave me human form as far as I can go. But they also know me. And that's what, when you subdue the ego, it doesn't go away, you subdue it, you wrestle it down so you can know yourself. And from there you can navigate your way around things. You can manage your energy. The reward of managing that energy is that life has a bit more flavor to it. Your days have a higher quality. Past, present, and future are clear to you. It's not all dissolved into an anxious moment, worried about the past, burdened by it, worried about the future, wrought with anxiety so you're not alive at all. You see the people just rotting with anxiety, never able to be still. It's never enough. Days and weeks, months, years go by, and they're constantly in it. And as we say, the endless pursuit of the endless pursuit, never fulfilling any joy, missing out on everything because they're never still. I don't have that problem. And when you wrestle the ego, that little moment we have of life is richer. It's a richer moment. So Z, you've covered such a wide range of your life experience, and it's interesting the way that you go about life. So we're talking about ego, ego subjugation. I like the way that you put it. A lot of the philosophies that you've studied talk about pounding the ego into the ground, and maybe it never fully disappears, but in the moment that it's subdued, you get some clarity about life. You can be present, you're not governed by fear, by impulse, being pulled in a thousand different directions. I think of the subjugation of the ego is freedom. You're only true freedom, because otherwise you're always a slave to whatever desire, whatever insecurity is going through your mind. So when we think about the ego, I think it's important for people to understand, number one, why you would want to live this way because we're so conditioned to a material existence and the thinking of the world is a zero-sum game we're out for ourselves and even if we don't want to be that way we're very primal so there are times when maybe we don't feel threatened we're more open to helping other people but there's a certain trigger when you feel like you're dealing with uncertainty you feel like you're going to lose something you revert to a primal state, and in that primal state, you just want to survive. And you're willing to attack and destroy anything around you to make sure that you can ensure your survival. We might see that in tribalism, and that's also where the ego comes into play. You might inherently not want to do something. Maybe you don't want to go along with the crowd, and maybe you don't want to sign off as the inspector 
claiming that you inspected the uh, the warehouse in Lebanon, but you do it because everyone else is doing it. Or you're the cop who's taking money because everyone else on the force is taking money, and you're afraid that they're going to kill you if you don't, whatever the reason is. So I think it's necessary to change the way that we approach life in a sense and maybe recognize that the ego is always going to be there it's not something that we can kill or we want to kill there is a purpose to it but as we talked about a couple of conversations ago we need to know the limits of the ego we need to know the behavior that it creates the incentives that it has and if we can step back and look at that objectively we can take it or leave it and sometimes it'll serve us because it'll trigger something that we need to do uh, to survive, to thrive. Or most of the time we might say, you know what, maybe I feel afraid, maybe I feel insecure, maybe I feel mean-spirited and I want to kick someone to make myself feel better, but I'm not going to do that. So I think having that awareness and that narrative in place, which is let's put the ego aside, step back, view life more objectively, that's the right starting point. So if we accept that, then there are a couple of things that I think would benefit our audience. Number one is how do you do that? And we've talked offline about that, so maybe share some techniques of how we get that ego in check. But two, and maybe you start with this Z, and we can come back to the how later on, but I think the second point is really around what is the benefit of doing that? So we get the ego in check, and we're not so worried about our own possessions, about getting the upper hand in a relationship, but what does that really do for us? I mean, if I take just a very naive perspective, or maybe it's uh, an ignorant perspective, yeah, I can put my ego aside, but that means less money for me, smaller houses. If I'm not stabbing my coworkers in the back, it means that I'm not moving up the corporate ladder fast enough. Why wouldn't I want? Why wouldn't I follow the ego? What do I gain? when I subdue the ego, I think if you can give people a picture of what that world is like, and you started to do that through your experience, but really flesh that out. What does it mean and what do we gain when we conquer that sense of self and that sense of, I need this, I need that, I need to control? When you look at the different uh, philosophies and scriptures around the world, be it the Bible, the Quran, the Torah, the Bhagavad Gita, the Upanishads, the Tibetan Book of the Dead, they have these common themes. And you find this common theme. What, what is it if you gain all the riches of the world but you lose yourself? You have every material thing but you have nothing. I'm not saying that a vow of poverty or anything like that makes you a better human being. Just knowing the limits of this world and the infinite, the infinite offerings of the enlightened soul. Can you be okay being all by yourself, which we really are? If you can be really okay being by yourself, then you're really good when somebody comes to that party. Because the party was already good. Being alone was great, but now you can share the stillness 
the serenity of that moment with someone. And when they come, you enjoy it. When they go, you enjoy that they were there. But you're lacking nothing. So it's not the metric of gain or loss. I have this and I have that. I need to stab my co-workers in the back in order to achieve what? What did you achieve? You betrayed everyone and you're on top of the hill. Now what? There's an emptiness in that. But there's a fullness in as you're going up that hill and you look around and there are others with you struggling, striving, you're offering them a hand and they're offering you a hand. There's something very nurturing about that. From the A-ego, the not-ego, and from the ego itself. The sense of self. Ego means the self. And you want to... We, we can really gain a lot by appreciating why in every scripture they have that warning. If gaining the world causes you to lose yourself, you, you gain nothing. Who do you share it with? How do you express it? Who do you compare yourself to? So really what we're talking about is liberation. True liberation. People fight really hard to have an expensive place in Times Square or Park Avenue. But then you go to the countryside and for less effort, for less consumptive energy, for less material exhaustion, you have a place by a creek. You find true serenity. So you may have pursued the same avenues of material success. But at the end of that race, can you, you can sit with yourself. You find peace in yourself. You're not wrapped up in this endless more, more, more. I've learned that in my own life when it comes to friendships. I have a, a number of friends that are as dear to me as family. I've also had a number of friends that have passed away. And I remember talking to somebody after one of my friends passed away. And they said, it's just what you've shared with me is unbelievable. You know, I have no friends. I said, really? I said, she, she told me, she said, I wish I could feel as sad as you do. I wish I could feel as sad as you feel. Because I know you feel this sad because you had something so good. I don't have anything that good. My life is not full. I feel the hunger of that, that nourishment, that lack of nourishment I have of having true friends. All my friends are provisional. All of the friends I have are societal props. But I'm very lonely. And if any of them passed away, I would not grieve that much, nor would they grieve for me. I wish I could be as sad as you were. I said, wow, there it is. So all the great books talk about enlightenment, God consciousness. 
the idea of heaven and hell exist in a lifetime. So the heaven of connection starts inside yourself. Whenever you find a lost soul that has trouble connecting with people, it's because they couldn't connect with themselves. That's why oftentimes people have the best intimate relationships in their life at their later years, because it took them a long time to know themselves. They were always looking outside of themselves for somebody who was just right, but they weren't right. Once you get right with yourself, as the scriptures, all scriptures tell us, then you're right with God. When I got right with my own soul, then my ability to embrace, to invite into my heart, increased. The subjugating of the ego, which will lock out the opportunity for growth and change, when you don't subjugate the ego, prevents that. Once one has subjugated the ego, then you can invite into your life godliness. You know, I've told the story many times of the Kumbh Mela. You've heard the story of the man who found God at the Kumbh Mela. I won't repeat the story, but in short, divinity exists all around us. But we are shielded from it because of the ego. The ego increases itself, inflates itself, makes itself grand and brilliant so you can't see anything but it. And right behind the veil of the ego is, 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 is divinity in which you can witness. And as it's said in the yoga scripture, the very witnessing of divinity will blind most people. They always tell the story of when Lord Vishnu or Shiva reveals themselves, the person can't take it. Why can't you take it? You can't take it because it thrashes all things you thought about life. It destroys it. Take yourself, for example, as you're working on your writing and being true to yourself. You weren't good at it the first time you jumped on stage, but you were drawn to it like a, a child is drawn to a Christmas present or whatever. You were so excited. And each time you did it, you got closer to finding yourself. But it took your willingness to humiliate yourself, so to say, to go on stage, to read to people that would judge you, and you did it again and again. So through that, you achieved a level of viewing of divinity. Vishnu revealed Vishnu to you. Shiva revealed Shiva. Brahma revealed Brahma. But it was only when you push the ego aside and you went and pursued the true you. Now you're on a journey where you find your own soul. You know, Caitlin said to me, she always, you know, hounds me and, and, and harangues me about learning stuff. And she was uh, learning um, ultrasound today. And, you know, we take her through all kind of shit, right? We take her through all kind of stuff. But she doesn't care. She, 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 knows that moment become egoless. She sweeps the shit away and teach me, show me. That is divinity working its way through. But the ego has to take a break. We cling to the ego because we 
falsely assume that it makes us extraordinary. This is a great falsehood. As you work to be true to yourself, look what's happened in a short period of time. All manners of people already want to steal your art. And you just, you're just beginning. You haven't even reached your full stride. That's not then. That's what the divine gave you. That's ancestors, ancestors going back a thousand years that don't know anything but how to speak the truth. They know nothing but how to call a spade a spade and you don't hide it. It's not you. It's them and, and, and all their suffering bottled up. And because you are the one who was able to humiliate yourself, to make a change, to do something different, to go out on a limb, to be courageous, to surrender to the divine, to be a tool or an instrument of God, then this thing has come forward. It's that simple. Whatever you define God to be, a God, no God, Vishnu, Brahma, Shiva, Buddha, your mom, your dad, whatever you need it to be, that's what it is, but you can only see it when the ego is moved away. I challenge everyone to do an ego-breaking exercise that takes, takes a lot of effort. I would like everybody to try to speak, write, dialogue, and not say, I, me, or my, for two or three days. Just talk in a way that you never say, I, me, or my. Those are all mantras that conjure the ego. I, me, my. The ego loves to hear that. And it calls it like a loyal dog comes running when you say, here, boy. Here, puppy. When the ego hears I, me, or my, it's just fired up. So if we could speak and interact without saying I, me, or my, try it for 48 hours. And you'll see how difficult it is. But once you have develop that skill, you're able to first reveal the ego, then subdue the ego. For the ego is like rats running through your house, that you see the remnants and the destruction they do, but you often don't actually see them. And when you do see them, they scurry away and hide, but they leave their debris everywhere. The ego is like those sneaky rats. It takes many forms but it leaves nothing but the plague in its wake, filth in its wake. So you cannot eliminate it, but you must subdue it. You must subdue it. And so the I, me, or my rejection is the beginning of ego identification. Ego identification then begins ego uh, taming. And from there you can um, modify your interactions and start to reach a higher level of consciousness. It's interesting when you're talking, this time you're getting me fired up. I think I normally fire you up. But I think about so many of these ideas, what it means to live. Like, what does it really mean to live? Are we here to fucking watch Netflix 
or go hang out at a massage parlor or do away with any discomfort or live in a in the lap of luxury and have people attend to us there's a certain integrity in doing and being in expressing and you're right there's a divinity that we all have there's divinity around us so for one to meet the other it's got to flow through and the ego is like an obstruction to that it's trying to hold on it's like a trying to grab a fistful of water and stop a river you can't do it you need to let it go but maybe you can temporarily impede its path and create problems with the proper flow so i feel like a lot of the issues we have as a culture it's just that we're so used to quantifying things we're so used to counting how much money do i have how many houses do I have? What is my title? We need things that we can observe and publicize and get recognition for. And everything that you're talking about is far more profound, but it's intangible. It's things like integrity. It's things like living with your head up high, not being beaten down by fear. That's what the ego often is. It's a projection of fear, a sense that your survival is at stake. So I need to do something to hoard resources, make sure that I don't die, make sure that I'm okay at the expense of others. So can you live without fear? Can you live with integrity? Can you live with tranquility? Can you really live? Uh, but we don't experience that. And I think that's really the irony because to see the benefits of the ego or see the benefits of subduing the ego, you have to subdue the ego. It's almost a catch 22. If you're caught up in the ego and identification with being the life of the party, being the one that everyone is going to build monuments to and respect and talk about, you will never get to a point where you experience these other aspects of life. The two are incompatible. You can't have that experience while you are still beholden to the ego. And you talked about liberty. I feel like that's absolutely right. And that's ultimately what freedom is. It's controlling the mind. It's uh, controlling the endless desires and not suppressing them, but just letting them go. Watching them come, watching them go, not being particularly bound to the vagaries of the mind. And in that, that's where the expression comes from, the divinity comes from. Uh, that's where you blossom as an individual. So I like your exercise because I think, I think this can build on itself. I mean, we need to take a first step. If we recognize that we're not really going to live until the ego is subdued, but we don't know the benefits of living while the ego is still there, then we need, there's something in us which has to take on faith the idea that there's more to life than this. And maybe it's looking honestly at how we live, whether the things that we do are good uses of our time. If we imagine our death or we step back and take a cosmic view, and think about the, the handful of moments that we have on this earth. Is this how we want to spend them? And if the answer is no, and we think there's something more profound, then maybe take that leap of faith and say, okay, I'm going to work on this exercise. I am going to subdue the ego. I don't know what's going to happen. I'm not sure. Maybe it feels a little bit scary. Maybe it feels unfamiliar. Maybe it sounds stupid, but I'm going to try and do it. And that exercise that you mentioned, I think is very interesting, is a way to just shift the mind from the sense of self. 
So that's something that I would encourage our audience uh, to consider. Mm -hmm. And maybe three days is a long time. Maybe you don't start with three days. Maybe you just start with one day or start with an afternoon or start with a conversation. Can have a conversation with ta without talking about me or mine and then let that build on itself. Recognize those moments of stillness, those moments of integrity, hold on to them. And I think through that, we get the momentum to keep on going. And, you know, I've said it earlier, but I'll reiterate it. It's not about killing the ego. There is some value to the ego. And maybe we talk about that for a second because the ego exists to serve some purpose. It, we have a physical body. We need to make sure that we don't die or take stupid risks, uh, that we have enough food and shelter. And the ego helps provide that. Maybe Z, you can provide some insight on that. Where do we get it wrong? At what point do we move away from an ego that serves our interests and helps keep us alive to stepping into some dystopia where our entire life is driven by the ego and we lose our free will. Well, I, I always refer to you know the classical text and it is said that the reason for the ego is that when we left the womb of our mother for the nine months we were in the womb, we breathed underwater. We were relying upon our mother to provide nutrient, fresh blood, and air for us. And at the moment of separation from our mother, the will to gasp for breath was the ego, the I want to live, I, me. And at that moment, the ego, you ask for the ego's assistance. This is what this, the Vedas tell us. And you took that breath which is called inspiration. Your first breath is known as inspiration. The last breath you take is expiration. Inspiration, the light that awakened the individual, the light that is extinguished, that ends the individual. So that individuality, that desire to just be here, was the ego. But the ego itself is a separate entity. And for the rest of your life, the ego, like a loan shark, whispers in your ears and reminds you of this open-ended debt, what it did for you at that moment. Remember when you were young and breathless? You asked me for a loan, and I gave you your first breath? You owe me. It's all about me. Whatever you do, it's me. You owe me. So the, the ego is like a loan shark. And the only way to tame that is to resolve that debt. Submit it. It will never let you go. It will always hound you about that dollar it gave you when you needed a, a, a gallon of gas or whatever it is. And it's always reminds you of the interest rate and the despicable position you were in. So all we can do is subjugate it, beat it down, but it will always whisper in your ear, what about me? I gave you I. You can only say I because I gave you that moment. Well, it's just a moment. And the ego doesn't really own it. It's, it was simply a conduit of that. So remember the nature of the personality ego. 
separated from the self, the I am. Separate the I from the I am. The I am defines you and, and gives you character. The I is just you, but the I am is the character and the color of you, the humanity of you. So as you work with that, you separate it and you subjugate it. And that's why that exercise is so challenging to speak or write a letter or talk to your loved one. Just play a game and tell a story about your relationship or something that you share and don't say I, me, or my. Talk about maybe a conflict or misunderstanding that has arisen between family members that doesn't include you saying I, me, or my. And a very short story becomes a long epic all of a sudden because you have to find new ways of speaking of a situation. You'll have to put yourself in the shoes of another person. You'll have to see the world from the perspective of the person that you're indicting. It's very difficult. So that is the limited purpose of the ego. Think about it as your personal loan shark. And you just don't want that loan shark to have more of you because the interest rates will always increase. That is where you get narcissism, egocentrism, and various other emotional and social diseases of the mind. So you just can't let that loan shark run the bank. You just, you, you just don't want to do it. And so that is uh, one of the exercises. But we, we can remember again the teaching is that its sole purpose was to awaken you from your mother's womb. After that, it has no purpose. So let's talk about some other ways of overcoming the ego. And there's one that you mentioned and also the literature mentions. I remember reading about this years ago, about how one way of subduing the ego is through service. That automatically takes the focus away from you, from your needs, and it shifts to whatever object you're working with, whether that's a person, a cause, whether you're teaching, you're helping. And the literature says that that's the fastest path to enlightenment because that forces you in the act of service to put the ego aside, get away from that, and automatically take the perspective of, of someone else. I mean, if you think about it, you need the volition to do something that doesn't immediately benefit you. Well, the, again, when we think about service, we want to, there's different types of service. Uh, the, the, the yogic teaching uh, tells us it's gifted service, not presented service. Gifted service is just doing something because you believe it's the right thing to do and you walk away not looking for acknowledgement or reward because then you're buying the reward. Presented service is you want everybody to know what you did. I gave uh, to the Carnegie Foundation. Look at me. Put my name on the list. I go and help the starving children of uh, Mississippi on a regular basis. Put my name on the cafe and put me in the news for being a generous person. That's presented service. So there's no service done. You paid for yourself to be acknowledged. You paid for your ego to be fed. Now, gifted service is the one that we use to achieve moksha, liberation. Just do something because you believe in your heart it's the right thing to do. And if no one ever knows you did it, you you feel great about it. Yeah. Yeah, I think about examples. I think there's a coherence. So you can talk about this from a religious standpoint, 
You can also look at practical examples, just how you feel when you give freely of yourself. It's unencumbering, unburdening. I remember there was an article I read about someone who decided to say yes to everything for a month. So no matter what anyone asked him to do, instead of saying, I'm too busy, I don't have the money, I don't have the time, he just gave. Mm -hmm. Gave his time, his energy, his money, if someone asked for money. And at the end of the month, he said, this is how I'm going to live from now on. Because it just felt so freeing to be that way. And I've experienced that in small ways. And Not that I've turned into some selfless person, but you kind of get a glimpse of what it's like. I think the freedom is really the allure, at least for, for me. I mean, that to me is the ultimate goal. Because anytime the ego is a trap, and we don't realize it's a trap. We hold on to things, and we think that provides us a benefit, and maybe it provides some temporary benefit. But there are a couple of problems with that. I mean, the immediate problem is that more is never enough. So no matter what we have, our standards are going to change. Mm -hmm. Our needs are going to change. It's always going to increase, which means that we live this life of discontent. And we've talked about anxiety. It creates tremendous anxiety because we live in a world that's fluid. We can't control the world, nor do we want to. We've talked about how stagnation is the equivalent of death. So life itself requires some evolution, some change, some shift in circumstances. And the ego is trying to to apprehend all that, uh, to say, no, I need to hold on mm -hmm. to my standard of living, to my relationships, to my vision of what life should be about. And it's a horrible way to live, and we all do it. But it's a life of fear and anxiety. And you almost walk around like a beaten dog where you're just terrified that some event is going to happen beyond your control and destroy your peace of mind. Uh, you're going to lose all these things that you've worked so hard for. How are you going to survive? And I think the worst part of this is usually we're perfectly fine. If something bad happens, you move on. You figure it out. You flow. But the anticipation of the bad event, the anticipation of loss, destroys us. And it's not even real. It's just a figment of our imagination. This is what the ego does. It turns us, our insides, into knots. It, it causes us to just project a series of horror movies in our mind about all the bad things that could happen, even if they have nothing to do with reality. And that's the trade-off we're making. That is the cost. We're saying, okay, yes, I'm going to get the money, I'm going to get the nice car, I'm going to get whatever else, and I feel like a big man for a day. But what is the cost of that? The cost is my freedom. The cost is to live with my head held up high, to enjoy the moments that I have. I think about life, and so much of how we live is focused around a point in time. Uh, it's the vacation or the promotion or this party that I'm looking forward to. What about the times that I'm brushing my teeth or I'm sitting on my ass? I mean, that's 99% of your life. If you can't enjoy it, if you just dismiss it, what life is that? That's what the ego does. It says, let's throw away all of that time. Let's focus on a few highlights. It just seems to me to be a colossal waste. And I think maybe there's some great narrative or great way of framing this that you can give us. Because you're always very good at <laughs> changing the way that we describe these conditions and giving us narrative. Is there a narrative around the ego that can help people just get it and start moving away? As you can see, I'm smiling here as you're talking and I'm thinking just about things that were taught to me that were very challenging and troubling. But there's a way that the things are framed in Hinduism 
that have, that have always resonated with me. I mean, the other traditions are, are beautiful also. I'll just share the things that I know. There's a few little things. So in the Vedas, in, in Hinduism, there's an idea about fate. Mm. And they have funny little stories about fate. And one of the captions of one of the stories is, fate is like a wayward mistress that visits you at the least opportune time. And I laugh at that because I've had a wayward mistress who visited me at the least opportune time or barged in on me or did something I wasn't supposed to. Everybody's had their wayward mister or mistress, right? And it's it's fate. That's how fate is. It just, <coughs> excuse me, something happens and boom. They say the ego is like a, fit, a wayward adolescent that destroys everything stomping their feet and wanting the attention to be on them, no matter what it is. So fate is a wayward adolescent. <laughs> yeah, I think that's a perfect analogy. I mean, I made that observation in a different context. That some of the people I've worked with in the past, you got 50-year-old men who are screaming like five-year-old kids. And I'm like, well, what the hell is this? Uh, but it's all ego. It's all insecurity. It's mm -hmm. all I gotta take my dick out and put it on the table because I'm afraid yours is bigger. But maybe if I get mine in the right light, it looks mm -hmm. a little bit longer, and I can feel good about myself temporarily. It's so costly. I mean, some of the other destructive characteristics of the ego that we talked about, you can't have a conversation. Well, think about that adolescent. <clears throat> Your girls aren't teenagers yet, but teenagers are nightmares. Teenagers and any kids that live at home are nightmares. Up until your kid pays their own rent, they are nightmares. They go through the adolescent, the toddler phase, which is really the, the heavenly phase. They're just so cute and cuddly. And then puberty hits and the hormones come in. And they're in the nether region, the twilight zone of adulthood and um, childhood, yet they lack a frontal lobe. They have no prefrontal lobe. So they only see the world through the lens of ego. What about me? What about me? What about me? And that is the ego itself. And as you witness that behavior and how you manage that behavior, that's the same way we need to manage our own ego. Right? Is strict limitations, strict boundaries. No gift or rewards without earned, you see? And, and that will help us govern that part of ourselves. And yet there is true liberation, as you would with the adult child at home. Um, you put those limitations, there's just less to worry about. There's less liability, less suffering. But at the same time, you have to keep an eye on them all the time because they will always breach their boundaries unless they are heavily policed and taxed. Mm -hmm. So too the ego is always waiting to breach its boundaries and claim itself greater over all things. So all the time we're working on submitting, subduing, putting it in a chokehold, right? And then from there, liberation is readily available. And the better you get at managing, the easier it is, like everything else in life. Mm -hmm. All right, Z, so we've had a pretty far-ranging conversation. Uh, we started talking about uh, Lebanon and Khalil Gibran. We got onto the ego. And a few points for people to take away. I think the ego is all about false promises. It promises you the world, the universe, but what does it really give you? 
it gives you a life of fear, a life of anxiety, an inability to connect with other people, and it robs you of the chance to really live an authentic existence and do what you've come on this earth to do. So I think it's critical that we at least take that leap of faith and say, maybe we should reconsider how we're living. Let's put the ego aside. We talked about some techniques for doing that. Mm-hmm. Conversations without the use of I, me, or mine. We talked about service. We talked about strict boundaries. So let's start implementing some of that. And again, the ego is never going to disappear. It does serve a purpose. But the more we can step back from the ego, the more clarity we have, and the more we can get to that state of liberation. That's right. And remember the I, me, or my exercise. And let us know how you feel. If you enjoyed the show, please consider leaving us a review on Podbean, iTunes, or your favorite podcasting app. Each five-star review helps us bring you more unique and insightful content. Learn more at dharmamedia.com. Peace.